So we're continuing our series on gratitude, and we've got a text this week that might not sound like it's about gratitude, but I think it is about priorities and discernment. And I think gratitude flows from how we think about and choose to spend our lives. So our text is Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere, teach the way of God in accordance with the truth, and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Or not. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this, and whose title? They answered, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It's kind of a messy text to me. The folks who come asking the question have messy, mixed motives. At best, it might be more fair to say they're just trying to manipulate Jesus. Herodians and Pharisees, the two groups that are mentioned in our text, are on opposite sides of this difficult issue. Do you pay taxes to an occupying empire? There's no good answer. If you say yes, then you are a collaborator, getting in bed with the oppressor, supporting the power that has done violence to your people and your land. But to say, no, I won't pay taxes, is to risk your life. And what if you have obligations? family, or friends, or community. Doesn't that count for something? How do you decide? How do you prioritize? There's no good answer for a Jew in Roman-occupied Palestine. And these kind of calculations turned oppressed and occupied people against one another. The Herodians and the Pharisees are on opposite sides of the issue, but they both agree that they do not like this upstart hick pastor from Galilee. So they team up and ask him this question that has no good answer. Not because they want a fresh view on the subject, but because they want to trap him. They have messy, mixed motives. And that might be the first good thing we want to notice about this passage. 
Because when we show up with messy or mixed motives, the word of life still speaks. Jesus answers them. But he doesn't fall into the trap, they said. Instead, he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, how would you draw your pie chart for that? Is it 50-50, God and Caesar's? Is it 90% God's and 10% Caesar's or the opposite? Can it be 15% Caesar's? and 80% God's, and 5% for Netflix? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. That part seems straightforward. Pay your taxes. That's how most Christians have interpreted this. Not all. Reasonable people, good Christians differ. But most have interpreted it to mean Pay your taxes. But it gets complicated. What if Caesar overreaches? What if the government asks for loyalty beyond what we should give? What if our money is used for more harm than the common good? Do you give to Caesar? Different Christians answer this differently. A conscientious objector says, no, you may not have my body to fight your war. And others enlist because of their faith. Reasonable, moral people differ on this. But that's not the whole question. And I don't think it's the ultimate question. How we decide how much of, we, of ourselves we give and what we give to depends on something deeper. And Jesus puts it all in perspective. He says, give to God what is God's. So we're drawing our pie chart, and we'll start by giving to God what is God's. So what is God's? What belongs to God? What doesn't? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Did any of us give ourselves life? Do we fill our lungs with air? Cause our hearts to beat? Can we claim our energy or intelligence or imagination or love as our own? God is the name for that ultimate reality in which we live and move and have our being. God is the word we use for the creator of the universe who inhabits the farthest galaxies and the atoms in our hands and the microbes in our guts. God is the name of all of it. And waking up to that reality puts everything in a new perspective 
We are the source, the owner of so very little. Maybe nothing in the final analysis. We're caretakers of gifts, stewards. Give to God what is God's. And if it is all God's, what does that mean? How do you do that? Some Christians have taken it literally. St. Francis comes to mind. He gave away all of his wealth, even the clothes on his back, until he was running naked down the road embracing lepers. But if we are not going to go streaking for Jesus, what do we give? And how? The Sunday school answer to why do I give to God is to give to the church. And it is not a bad answer. It is not the only answer, but it's not a bad answer. It is an incarnational answer. It gives to the embodied community of Christ on earth. When we give to the church, we are giving to the messy, imperfect, amazing, grace-filled reality of this community. For us, that means we get to give to Blacksburg Preds. What a privilege that is. But giving to the church is the beginning, not the end, of what we do. Joseph and I tithe. We give 10% to this community. And I share that not to be proud or because there's any magic in that number. It's just the practice I grew up with. It's a traditional number. But it's not magic. But it is enough that it catches our attention most months, especially those months where we're a little nervous about how it's all going to work out. And it's like a homing beacon or a lighthouse that comes around again and again Reminding us, it's all gift. It's all gift. It's all gift. And all gifts are good gifts. There is no magic gift where you get into the kingdom. Whatever gift catches your attention and reminds you how much we've been given, that's what we're called to. The church, at least on this side of heaven, is a flawed, infallible thing. We know that. And so that's the beginning, not the end. Lots of life goes on far beyond the scope of this community and these doors. And nothing is really ours in the final accounting. And so I think the real question becomes, how can all that I spend and all that I buy become an expression of love? When we shop for food, when we decide where to buy our clothes, when we decide if we should have another 
feast out on the town or save for college or retirement. We decide how to spend our time, where to put our attention, how to give our limited energy. The determining question, as I understand it, is what is the call of that love that we call God? Which doesn't offer any pat answers. But it does put things in perspective. Because the whole pie chart is God's. It's not like church is God's, but worker relationships aren't. It's all God's. So we start there, make our, rela- uh, make our decisions from that point on. Irenaeus, one of the fathers of the church, said that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Glory of God is a human being fully alive. So the question isn't how much time will I give to work and how much time will I give to self-care and how much time will I spend cleaning the house and how much time will we give to volunteering at church. There's no perfect answer to that. It's the wrong question question is, how will we be humans who are fully alive? It doesn't matter if you get the list done or scrap it and spend the day laughing with a friend in the woods. It doesn't matter how much you get done if you don't get it done at all. All gifts are good gifts. What you give is enough. You, just as you were created, are enough. All God asks is that we give ourselves so that we might be fully alive. It's just that easy. It's just that hard. Amen.